1: Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast for creators of any variety. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for being here and listening, especially if it's your first time listening. This is the first episode you've ever heard. Thank you for joining us. We have uh, 70-some other episodes, and... You can get all of those right now on SoundCloud or iTunes and soon Stitcher because I have a cousin who can only listen to podcasts on Stitcher, so I guess I'm getting Stitcher now so family can hear this. Uh, yes, this is a comedy podcast, but it is for creators of any variety, and that just means if you are creating anything, expense reports even, then I think you can learn something from this Podcasts. I think there's plenty to learn about having a procedure, generating ideas, creating ideas, being creative. And even having a discipline. And today's guest is great at giving knowledge about how to do that. He's a stand-up comedian here in New York City. His name is Mike Kaplan. He's been on Last Comic Standing a ton of episodes of Conan. He was even on Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien and David Letterman's Late Show. He's really great. Gives a lot of really good information here. Here's my chat with Mike Kaplan.
0: I grew up in New Jersey.
1: Okay, so not far from New York City where it looks like you cut your teeth for the most part doing comedy, right?
0: I did start doing comedy in Boston. I went to college, yeah, I went to Brandeis for undergrad and then I went to grad school at BU and I started doing comedy while I was in grad school, so I was doing it from 2002 to 2008 in Boston and then moved to New York and have been here since.
1: Yeah, that is a long stretch in Boston, and Boston's a good scene to start in. That's correct. Yeah, a lot of great comics have come out of there, and I say it's a good scene to start in because there are a lot of good comics there, but it's not an industry scene. So you can learn from watching really good people often and also not have to deal with the industry BS that can happen if you start in L.A.
0: It is true. I mean, you also, wherever you are, if you're in New York or if you're in LA and there are industry at shows, you can do whatever you want at them. You're you're not necessarily at their mercy all the time. You can live your own truth. But of course, I do understand. I, definitely, it's good. Uh, I didn't do it there for a reason other than that was where I went to school because it was where I got the best, you know, sort of financial deal to go to school. (laughs) Uh, But uh, it turned out to be a, a happy accident, an organic, nice thing that, yeah, Boston has, pretty much any comedy scene that's not New York or LA that is a city, like, you probably have a few comedy clubs and then various open mics and bars and restaurants and like bookstores and cafes and weird shows or bowling alleys or laundromats. And, you know, there's probably, you know, in Boston, maybe at any given time, a few hundred people that are in and out of the comedy scene, like some mm-hmm. professionals, some people who live there but tour, some people, but, you know, just sort of make the circuits around New England. And it's sort of its own little island, like, not. There's not always tons of, like, people in Boston who've been doing it there for 30 years, they can just keep doing that. And uh, and a lot of times when you come up there, then you're like, oh, I guess uh, I might not become a Boston headliner. Maybe I'll leave. And then you, after, like, for me, six years, went, moved to New York, or some people moved to L.A. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it's nice to become, hopefully, a, a better comedian than you were when you started before then entering New York, L.A., or the, the consciousness Of the comedy world.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good plan as well. Uh, I think we originally met in South Carolina um, because I was living in Greenville and you had done a bunch of shows in the area. And um, uh, through Nick Shaheen. Shout out. Oh, yeah. Nick Shaheen. And um, I do think it's good to like just wherever you are, get up on stage, learn how to get up on stage, learn how to construct some jokes and figure stuff out and get better, as you said. Uh, as you continue to progress and move on and doing stand-up. But, um, you know, if you can do that in one place uh, before going to New York, I feel like that's ideal because I know people who will sort of bounce around in smaller places and then will say, like, and then I'll go to New York. Um, I'm probably totally wrong about this. It's not like I have credits or I'm (laughs) this touring comic, but – doesn't it seem like it's better to, as you said, like, get good and then go to New York and speci- or, or L.A., but especially if it's not bouncing around all over the place, if you kind of stick to maybe one or two places before going to New York or L.A.? Does that seem like a good plan?
0: I like your question, and here's uh, what I'll say before I answer it. Number one, here's a, a joking impression of your question. Now... I might be completely wrong, but am I right? I'd I'd love to get it right, but I'm sure that I might be wrong. But am I right? Uh, That's a a
1: fair assessment. In fact, uh, here's
0: a. uh, I'll before I I'll I'll answer the question like this. There's a lot of people I know that when they start out uh, are like, say, if they're living in Boston, they're like, "Oh, I'm going to go down to New York and do some shows there. I'm going to like travel to Chicago. I'm going to travel. Like, I'm going to see what it's like to do comedy in front of all different audiences." And I understand that impulse, and there's nothing wrong with doing that, but I, I don't think it's necessary. I think to answer your question, uh, whether or not it's the right thing to do, I think it's, if you're living in one city, like if you're, I know about starting in Boston, I know that starting in Boston was great because it is sort of like a microcosm of like, you know, if you're in New York, you've got some shows that'll be like all for tourists because they get barked in, in times square, you could do something, you go to the comedy Cellar. you have a a completely different kind of audience. They don't uh, bark in people at all. People just know that that's a prestigious place where you might see a lot of good comedians, famous people maybe. Then you've Mm -hmm. got all the other clubs that have their particular way of doing things. Then you've got, you know, obviously the UCB and like places like that. And you've got, for lack of a better term, you know, it's not just that there's clubs and there's alt rooms. There's also, of course, like all these different venues and types of places that, uh, that have their audiences that have their comics that they book that have you know there's these little mini cultures all over new york city so that if sometimes people are like what's comedy like in new york i'm like there's no one way that comedy (laughs) is like in new york like uh and boston is sort of like a smaller version of that like there's like when i was starting out the comedy connection was like the big club the biggest club in town that the like national headliners would come to if they weren't performing at a theater Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like, you know, 400 ish seat room. And, you know, eventually you'd hope to, you know, you during the week, you would do open mics there, or like showcases or amateur nights or like, you know, pro comic showcases of just Boston people on like, you know, Monday through Wednesday and then Thursday through Sunday would be like the headliner. And so you had that, which sometimes would be like kind of uh, it could be touristy. It could be bro It could be depending on who the headliner was. If it's a headliner weekend, like they bring out their audience Uh, and then across the river, like where I started out at a place called the comedy studio, which is where like Eugene Merman started and Brendan small and like a lot of Conan writers. Uh, and that's a place that would, would have been, I think, you know, sort of self-identified as like the altier uh, place so that, I mean, ideally, you know, I remember Brian Kiley, who has been writing for Conan for maybe decades now, uh, as a wonderful comedian he would say like, you know, he would, he loved performing at the studio and he would also perform at the connection. And he would say, if he had a joke that worked in both places, you know, equally the best, he'd be like, well, that's a great joke because it's, you get the opportunity to perform in a city in front of like sometimes international audiences, sometimes, uh, college audiences. Sometimes obviously there's, you know, people who make a lot of money, people who make a little money, you know, there's, uh, like Alston and Brighton, which have, uh, you know, some kind of like, you know, hipsterier kinds of shows. Like I've, you know, (laughs) performed at vegetarian food festivals. I performed at diners, like in, and that's all in Boston. And like, even outside of Boston, like sometimes, you know, I drive an hour to New Hampshire or Rhode Island or Connecticut or Vermont, a few hours or Maine, a few hours. And like within a day, you know, less than a day's driving distance, you could, you don't, you know, I didn't feel the need to like if I was traveling like you know if I went to San Francisco I'd try to get on stage there but I wasn't making specific trips far far from New England mm-hmm. because and now no, now having you know been doing comedy for 15 years looking back and being like oh I didn't yeah I didn't need to do that so I would tell anybody you don't need to go you don't need to live in lots of places if you want to go for it you don't need to travel lots of places when you're starting But I do think it is valuable to get in front of different audiences, but depending on what city you're in, you might be able to find all those different audiences. Uh, You know, there might be a black club that, and if you're not black, you might still be able to perform there. You know, Mm -hmm. there might be uh, like all these, there's all these different, you know, demographics uh, in a city and there's all different performance venues in a city. So when you're starting out, I think the most important thing to do is to get on stage as much as possible and if you can do that in your city, then great. And if you can't, then sure, go to a, a town over, a state over, mm-hmm. uh, a, a hemisphere over. Do whatever you want. There's no wrong answer. <laughs>
1: right. Right. Yeah, I do know someone that would, uh, when he would travel from D.C. to the Carolinas, he would try to hit up as much stuff as he could. In the, Like like he might be staying in Greenville. He would do some mics in Greenville. But he also tried to go to Columbia, Asheville, because those areas are close enough, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, and it it makes a, it's a good idea um one of the things that you touched on there was the different kinds of rooms and having jokes that work in those different rooms uh if somebody has maybe a particular voice and they have found going to different kinds of rooms that their material only does well in one room, should they feel discouraged or should they say, "Well, at least I know who my audience is
0: uh both maybe but also <laughs> uh i would say when starting out uh the goal is to figure out who you are and thus i feel like knowing who your audience is is only a question that really makes sense once you have figured out who you are which some people would say ah, oh, you got to do it at least five years some people say oh five years it's actually 10 oh it's really 15 or 20 you know as as there are now more and more comedians that you know started in the boom of the '80s, and like you know, in ten years there'll be a bunch of comedians that have been doing it forty years, and they're like, "Oh, you really don't know who you are as a comedian until you're you know old enough to run for president as a comedian." <laughs> like you got to be thirty-five at least, thirty-five years in comedy before you know anything. Um, but I, so I would say uh, definitely, I, there's there's this uh, quote by Niels Bohr that I like that says the opposite of a small truth is a lie. And the opposite of a great truth is often another great truth. And mm-hmm. so one truth is when you're starting out, like, you know, the goal is to make audiences laugh, to make as many people laugh as possible, mm-hmm. to like, obviously you're in comedy. Uh, if, if you're never making anybody laugh, are you doing comedy? A great philosophical question in the woods with one hand clapping, no hand slapping, probably mm-hmm. if you're not making <laughs> anybody laugh any But the sort of great truth opposite of that is you always want to be yourself, You want Mm -hmm. to not make people laugh, obviously, in the extreme, by telling other people's jokes. Like, that would be the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. But even to, like, if you write a joke and you're like, I don't believe in this. I don't think this is an idea that I care about. I don't think this is funny. But it does make people laugh. Like, obviously, in the beginning, you you don't know how you're funny. You don't know how to be funny, necessarily, other than maybe with your friends or in whatever situations outside of professional, official comedy situations uh, but learning how to do it in front of audiences is a thing that usually takes some time, adjustment, learning, editing, growing. And so I think that saying like, oh, I only appeal to these kinds of audiences, in the, if you're too early in it, is limiting. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. recommend thinking like that. I would say strive to be yourself yourself. For as many different audiences as possible. And yes, then if at a certain like when people ask me like if I go to a certain region of the country or if I go if I perform for a certain age demographic or a different, you know, racial or ethnic breakdown, like, you know, if I'm performing for all Jews or not all Jews, if I'm performing mm-hmm. for all vegans, not all vegans. If I'm performing in the south or the west or the north. like people ask, like, do you change what you do? And at this point, I mostly don't. like if I'm performing for like, all old people i might not tell jokes about the fast and the furious you know if i if i have those jokes which i which i do if i'm performing uh, for an audience not in boston i won't tell jokes that are about like a specific you know boston local references that would mm-hmm. i think really that would be an obvious thing but other than that I mean, even, even that I wouldn't even swear, like if it's a story, if it's something that's worth telling in Boston, I think there could be a way to make it worth telling somewhere else that isn't just a Mm. reference joke of like, ah, this part of town is like this, you know? Right. So I would say wherever I go and whoever I'm performing for, you know, at this point I've written hours and hours of comedy. And so I might, like if I'm doing a corporate gig and they're like, please don't swear I won't tell any jokes that have swears in them. I won't be just writing all new jokes that don't have swears <laughs> to try and you know, uh, curry favor or pander to whatever audience I'm doing. Unless they're – if they're like, we'd like to hire you to write jokes about our company, then I'll do that. But if we're right. talking – generally speaking, I will take the hour that I'm doing or the, whatever I'm working on right now. And I'll do it in, you know, in San Francisco or Nashville or Atlanta or somewhere in Texas or Minneapolis or Canada or Australia. Uh, I mean, when I went to Australia a couple years ago, sometimes you have to realize like, oh, they don't know. They don't have the exact same words for all the things like what would (laughs) what would what word should I say in this joke Um, instead of the word that I normally do. But overall, and so ultimately, after you've been doing comedy for years and years, Then if you get to a point where I heard a story about Brian Regan once that
1: Mm -hmm. uh,
0: there was a club in the South somewhere. uh, Maybe I want to say it had the word dome in it, like the Thunderdome or the Superdome (laughs) or something that makes me think it's like a gigantic arena, but it's not because I think it's a, a performance, a smaller performance venue than, you know, a dome would normally entail. So I forget where it is, but I, the story I heard was the owner of this club uh 50, 52 weeks of the year, 50 of those weeks, he would book either like a, a self-identified redneck act or a self-identified <laughs> Def Jam act. And so for 25 weeks, you know, uh, one crowd would come out to see the Def Jam acts and the other 25 weeks – uh, another crowd would come out and see the Redneck Axe, and the other two weeks of the year, he would bring in Kathleen Madigan and Brian Regan. <laughs> and and Brian Regan, the story he would tell is like, I he would just eat it. He would just because he wasn't either of those things. Right. And that was the audience. were like, oh, well, I guess it's got to be. It's got to be one of them. So we'll come out <laughs> and see this guy. <laughs> and it and was says, neither of them. Yeah, he would just eat it year after year. He would just keep. And he's he asked the owner, he's like, why do you keep? rebooking me and the guy's like i love you he's like i gotta like at least two weeks a year i gotta have some like you're my favorite comedian or something like that he's like i want to bring you in i want to bring kathleen madigan in i understand uh the rest of the time like i am also thinking about the audience that's coming to see the show but he's like give me two weeks and so brian regan i don't know how long he'd been doing comedy at that time like not long enough that he didn't have to take those gigs, I guess, <laughs> uh, but long enough that he knew who he was and he knew that, that in in those moments, that wasn't his audience. Mm-hmm. And so I think at a certain point, yes, you you can say that. But for if you're listening to this thinking like – and you're getting into comedy and you're only doing it like a few years or even five years or even ten years, like I, I don't have – there's no places right now that I wouldn't – like if somebody was like, do you want – enough money to come here and do comedy. And if I was like, Oh, I, there's no audience or no place, unless I felt like like if they were like, come to a war zone, like I might <laughs> not go there. Uh, but uh, you know, if I, a place where it's just a place that I'm unfamiliar with the terrain, the environment, the, the specific people. If it's a place I've never been, like I'm willing to go and be like, I'm a human being. I'm a comedian. I've been doing this for 15 years. I would. I'm happy to learn how uh, how I'm received in this audience. And uh, and yeah. And if it if it doesn't go over, I don't think. Uh, I mean, also I would say like there's very few places where I've ever gone, like the same way that there's no just one way that comedy is in New York, like comedy isn't the same in like Winnipeg or, you know, (laughs) Boise as well. Like maybe there is, you know, a scene and a feel and a vibe or a community, but I've had some places you go and, you know, half the shows are great and half the shows are less great. Mm -hmm. Like there's different people in every town and they're not, like nobody is the same everywhere. So I would say uh like even like there's providence rhode island very near to boston like some of the clubs there sometimes when you perform at a club there you're like wow this is not like it's a a specific flavor a specific portion of what it's like in providence rhode island but also providence has like brown university and RISD, you know rhode island school of design there's like artistic young people and you know blue collar older people like there's uh, every every city has some you know diverse community that some of them uh, will go to one venue some night and sometimes the next night will come to another. You know, like yeah, so I think I've answered your question uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, more than enough.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I do have a question about finding yourself on stage, like be, like learning how to be yourself and and develop that self on stage. How long did it take you to discover that? It's different for everybody, I know.
0: It is Uh, the answer that I give for myself will be applicable to everyone. It was (laughs) six years, two months, three days. Um, (laughs) Here's another another one of these great truth opposites. Is like sometimes you uh, have greater insight into yourself, and sometimes others have greater insight into at least how you are perceived mm-hmm. because you might, you know, you might think of something and think it's the greatest. And then you tell an audience and they're like, disagree. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> and I would say like, I started with kind of like a delusional self-confidence that uh-huh. sometimes is necessary to be able to go on stage and be like, I'm worth listening to. Uh-huh. And have people be like, no, you're not. And be like, <laughs> I disagree with you. I'm going to keep trying. And then eventually, you know, it becomes kind of a fake until you make it thing Mm-hmm. Which you don't even know that you're faking it. Like in the beginning, I didn't know that I was not as good as I thought I was. Uh, but like later, I'd be like, "Ooh, I was not as good as I thought I was." Good <laughs> thing I know myself now. So like, but then in five years, I'll be like, "Ooh, what about that?" No, thank you. And so maybe in the beginning, there's more of like you know, a if you look at a graph of your improvement, you have so much room to improve in the beginning, mm-hmm. uh, and so it'll be like a like a you know a one a one-to-one axis, sort of like, you know, just a diagonal line going right, like a 45-degree angle. Or maybe it's even higher. Maybe there's, like, such a a sharp learning curve, like, wow, I was horrible. Now I'm a lot better. Now I'm a little better. Now I'm a little, little better. And at a certain point, once you've been doing it, maybe, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, like, you'll still be improving. You'll never reach the best that you'll ever be, hopefully. Hopefully, like, the stuff that I'll do next year, I'll be happier with. I'll be happier with the comedian I am next year. Uh, Like, I've heard people in it 20 years being like, oh, yeah, like, Louis even will talk about, uh, you know, I think he says he's been doing it 32 years, and he's like, I got good four years ago. Like, (laughs) and maybe in 10 years, he'll say the same thing, you know, Mm -hmm. and so I would say, though, that the point at which, for me, the, the curve, like, leveled off a little bit where it, I started and like my friends in college were like, why are you doing comedy? We're all funny. You're not any funnier than us. Why are mm-hmm. you doing comedy? And I'm like, well, I, you could all do it too if you want, but uh, I'm doing it. <laughs> and then I'd say five years in maybe, but somewhere between four and six years in, one of those friends, like they came to see me at bringer shows. They mm-hmm. came to see me in my first you know, six months and then right. they stopped. But then like four or five years in, I invited them to a show. And I remember that my friend Dave came to the show And it was like I'm like this is a good show. I'm on a good show with good people. I think you'll you'll like it, regardless Mm -hmm. of whether you like me. And after the show, he's like, "You're good now." And (laughs) I remember, you know, Joe List. uh, Joe List is a comedian Mm -hmm. and good friend who also started out around the same time I did in Boston. And I remember like uh, being at a show at the comedy studio again, like four or five years in. This must have been around, like you know, started 2002, so around 2006, doing a set. And, like, on a Saturday night, just a seven-minute set at the mm-hmm. comedy studio. And afterwards, Joe was like, that was really good. Like, in a way that I understood means he had never seen me be that good. Uh-huh. It was surprising to him. He was <laughs> like, "Like you're good now. And, like, we all – I think we all have those experiences because, you know, it's like you see yourself in the mirror every day. You don't mm-hmm. know the changes that are happening gradually. Right, right, Somebody sees you, you know, six months apart Uh, And also, you know, he might have just seen me, you know, uh, doing like new stuff at open mics for months and months at a time. Like, I I remember the first time I saw Eugene Merman at that club, like I saw him, you know, probably on a Thursday, like trying some things out. And I'm like, cool, this guy's good. And then like seeing him like a year later do like a killer, like, you know, running a set for Conan or Montreal or something and be like, pow, 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 pow. I'm like, wow, this guy's amazing. Like, And it's interesting to know that from both sides of it because I know now the way that I get better is by people see me not being as good as I can be. I could go out every night and do, quote-unquote, the best jokes that I've ever written, but I won't grow because I won't be writing any and won't be performing any new jokes. So after several years of uh, having no best jokes I've ever written, eventually they add up. And so I would say, like, Around four years is where people started acknowledging that I was decent enough mm-hmm. to book to like. I think that's the first year that I opened for somebody at the big comedy club in town. Like, I opened for mm-hmm. Mike Verbiglia at the Comedy Connection four years into doing comedy. And then he brought me to open for him a few other places. And then I started like working regularly in Boston and like there were these bookers that would book you and like, you know, hey, drive an hour outside of Boston. You make 50 bucks if you're opening or 100 bucks if you're featuring. And then so like I would open for a couple of years and then I was featuring for a couple of years. And then around like 2007, 2008 is when I got a college booking agent and started like headlining colleges, even though I wasn't really headlining clubs yet. But I had an hour of comedy uh, that I eventually recorded like my first album in 2009. So I'd say by that point, I was glad I I'd, I'd been offered to record one maybe a year or two earlier, and I had an hour like I did an hour of comedy probably in like 2006, 2007. You know, mm-hmm. start performing at colleges. But you know, uh, I I was glad to get the opportunity, uh, and I was glad the first opportunity sort of fell through. The first time I didn't get to record an album probably like 2007. And then when I did finally get to make the album in 2009, it all sort of came together like logistically wise. Like I had an hour that I've been doing like the best of what I'd come up with in seven years that it felt good to get it down and then start, you know, working on creating the next hour, which then I, you know, uh, recorded maybe four, three, four years later. And, uh, and similarly, I now like if people wanted me to, to record an album every year, I could like, I, I write a lot. I try things out a lot, like I riff a lot now. It's fun mm-hmm. to be in the moment, and like I would do even in the right for the right audience, an album full of stuff that like I didn't even necessarily plan everything. Like, but right now it's sort of like there's a a natural gatekeeper situation where I. I, do, I decide when I'm ready to do something, and then also somebody else has to be like, we agree, we will record this for you. We will mm-hmm. produce this and release this for you. Like, I could do everything on my own, but it's nice to have sort of the give and take. But yeah, so to answer your question, for me, somewhere between, you know, four and five years, like, feeling like I could do a good, you know, 10-minute set, a good 15-minute yeah. set, like, knowing what worked uh, at least, you know, a good portion of the time. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I, you know, to have my first hour my first headlining material uh to that i felt comfortable and fun and you know i listened back to that first album i made and there's like things that i of course would do different now right Uh, some jokes i wouldn't tell exactly the way that i did tell them but i still like i still sell those albums like i'm i'm not ashamed to tell people that that was who i was as a comedian there are still people who respond to it and like it if they're if they see me and they like it. Like I mean it would make me feel even better if somebody sees me live, gets that album, enjoys it, but is like, I like what you're doing. Now even better. Yeah, it, that's the sort yeah.
1: of thing that's good for an artist. You like a, a band probably never wants to hear from a fan that their favorite album is the first one.
0: And it, it makes sense because uh when you start doing, co- like that's the, the album that I put the most time into, but a lot mm-hmm. of that time was just learning to be a comedian. Yeah. And so in some ways that doesn't count. Like, uh, but it does make sense that like if somebody, you know, spends years and years writing a book or creating their first thing, mm-hmm. and then if it, if it does especially well, if it is really good, then sometimes there can be like demand for you to put out something else maybe sooner than you're ready. So right. like everybody is, like, you know, Dave Attell put out skanks for the memories probably like if i don't know if it was like 15 years into doing comedy it was like a long time into his career he could have put out an album before that and then he puts out a special like you know a year or two later or a couple mm-hmm. of years after that and i i remember skanks for the memory i've like listened to that so many times and i've only seen his next special which was i think called captain miserable mm-hmm. like uh once or twice and like it was good i enjoyed watching it but for me like and i'm not going to go to david tell and be like I love your album, and I like your special. But, but I also, you know, then years and years later, he puts out the, uh, the thing that I think is on Netflix now, which is like in five different places on the road where he does, you know, like, and that's awesome, and I love that, and I'll watch that over and over. And yeah. sort of, it's a funny thing, like, there's, I don't know if this will be an exact analogy uh, that I want to make, but have you heard there's this zen, uh, like, saying, this zen sort of aphorism, like, uh, it's before enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. After I have enlightenment, heard that. and then, yeah, after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water is the end of it. Where <laughs> it's you, you're doing, you're going through the same motions, like whether or not you've been enlightened or not. Because right. once you're once you're quote unquote enlightened, or not even quote unquote, once you attain some measure of enlightenment, you're like, well, now what? And you're like, well, now I apply that to the same thing that I've been doing. If I've been <laughs> doing comedy, like you start out. How do I do comedy? You just do comedy. That's all there is to do comedy. Okay, that's what's the secret? What's the target? You just keep doing comedy. Keep doing comedy. Eventually, you get to a point where you're like, oh, yeah, I got it. I, <laughs> yeah. I know how to do it. Now what do I do? Just keep doing comedy. Just keep doing comedy. Uh, yeah. And so... For Dave Attell, it's not the exact same thing, but it's like that first album that he put so much time and effort and care and you know, be, being the comedian, becoming the comedian. There it is, boom! Like the pinnacle of all of his accomplishments <laughs> up to that point. And then you know, another year later, he puts out another thing. And but now, and who knows? Now maybe he could put out the uh, thing of the highest caliber every year because mm-hmm. you know. At, After years and years and years, you, you know, gain and attain this mastery, like Mm -hmm. this potential, you know, artistic enlightenment that allows you to keep doing what you were doing uh, before you even knew what you were doing, like when it was just going through the motions. And now Mm -hmm. it's really like going through the emotions.
1: (laughs) It sounds like getting better at comedy and finding yourself on stage are maybe two in the same.
0: Uh, yes, I would say that I understand why we, why you might be talking about them or why anybody would talk about them as different things, because in the beginning, it is perhaps a matter of like simple, like mastery of skills or not even mastery, just learning how to, like, if you're learning, I remember Pat Oswalt made, uh, uh, in an interview, he made an analogy to like being a chef. He's like, you know, when you, when you become a, when you want to become a great chef, Uh, you don't start out doing like molecular gastronomy. You start out making like the best bowl of rice that you could ever, like make the perfect bowl of rice first before that. And I think he was comparing that to like the way that some like people would start out in clubs and create their club act. And it was like, you know, jokes with setups Mm -hmm. and punchlines. And then some people would then go off. And when the alternative scene started, like with, uh, like Kathy Griffin and Janine Garofalo and Mark Marin and Dana Gould and uh, Bobcat Goldthwait and all these people that were doing one thing in clubs and then they would go to a bookstore or, you know, a black box theater or a cafe or, an, you know, an alt venue and they would just tell stories about their life or talk about their day in ways that if you just saw them do that, it'd be like looking at Picasso but not knowing that he was capable of doing like hyper photorealistic work that he didn't just start by like being like, I'll put an eye over here and a mouth over here. Like, you know, be like, oh, my kid could do that. Or like you look at, you know, somebody like Patton telling a story from his life, be like, I could tell a story from my life. But he has, as the building blocks built up, the skills of being a comedian uh, before then he can do whatever he wants with it, which is still not that he's just doing things willy-nilly, but in the beginning, it's potentially all about, you know, becoming learning how to do comedy. Learning how to, if you're writing jokes, tell jokes. If you're writing stories, tell a story. If you're being a character, be that character. Whatever it is that you're starting out with, it's all about figuring like, you know, when I think, yeah, if you're if you're early on thinking about your voice isn't nest like use use your voice. Don't do more doing than analyzing in the uh, beginning. Like mm-hmm. especially when you're writing, write. When you're performing, perform definitely like I'd say record what you do like Mm -hmm. and like that's what I do like listen back to the sets especially in the beginning uh but I do it all through now as well I like record my sets I record my ideas and then I listen back and like don't censor yourself when you're recording don't censor yourself when you're creating don't censor yourself when you're performing like let everything come out that you want to come out in the moment and then later go back and be like what what do I like? You can also listen, like, what did the audience like? But mm-hmm. more important is what you like, because, uh, and I think the idea that uh, instead of, you know, writing things that you think other people will like, first, write write things and come up with things that you think are good. Write things that you are entertained by. Write things that are meaningful to you and funny to you and important to you and valuable to you. And most of you, if, if you're doing comedy, funny is important. Uh, Mm -hmm. write things that you think are funny and write, write whatever you want, but have, have it come from you and for you initially, and then share that all with everybody. And then you'll find out where everybody agrees with you. And then you can, if there's something that you really care about that an audience never responds to, you can Mm -hmm. keep working on it, keep chipping away at it, keep editing it, keep doing it in different ways because you believe in it. But also if there are things that you think are funny that other people think are funny, definitely keep doing those as well. Do the things that you think are the best that the audience thinks are the best. And then eventually you can make your own decisions and be like, you know, not that I don't even care what the audience thinks about this particular thing, but you can, like in any of my albums or any of my specials, like there's probably a line or two somewhere that maybe didn't work more often than it did, but it was important to me or it was funny enough to me. It was a small piece of a thing that I'm like, this is part of a larger hole that gets the response that I want. And I don't have to say this part. If I wanted every line to get the largest laugh possible, maybe I would take this out. But getting the largest laugh possible every second of every set isn't necessarily the most important thing. At a certain point, I think, you know, being interesting, being uh, poignant and thoughtful and meaningful as a part of the larger whole of being funny and sharing, you know, your art in the way that you want to, like, that's also. Uh, it's a, you can do whatever you want. You can go on stage and not get any laughs at all. You can go on stage and get all laughs all the time. You can go somewhere in the middle and be like, "Here's something that's meaningful." Like I talk now on stage. Sometimes I tell a joke or a truth about how I tell jokes and I tell truths. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and the one of the punchlines is if people laugh at it, uh, and jokes. I'm oh, sorry, truths are just jokes that people don't laugh at. <laughs> so I appreciate you uh, liking that joke. And if you didn't (laughs) laugh, I'm sure that you would appreciate the truth. So, uh, and I think that that's a thing that can apply to anybody that, uh, if you're saying something, have there be a reason that you're saying it either you're it's funny to you or it's important to you. I think those are, it's meaningful to you in some way, or it's funny to you. And I mean, ideally both, ideally you want to say things, I think ultimately that are, funny and meaning and meaningful can mean so many things meaningful mm-hmm. can contain so many meanings like it doesn't have to be that every joke is about social justice it doesn't have to be every joke is about the traumas that you've been through it doesn't mean that every every joke can't be just something that you think is the silliest thing that makes you laugh so much that you want to share with other people that is meaningful also in its own way
1: another question i have has to do with going up at open mics and trying material, if you're starting out, especially where I'm at right now, uh, the mics that I've gone to, it's mostly or pretty much all been comics in the room who are either thinking about how their set went or how their set's going to go or leaving. And uh, that could be kind of a tough crowd to get attention. What sort of advice do you have for people who are performing to a room full of comics who are just kind of in their head, thinking about their own jokes.
0: Uh, my number one piece of advice is try to have other places that aren't that to also perform as Mm -hmm. much as possible, which I know, especially in New York and even in Boston, there were, uh, some, some places that were like that, like a bar that mostly was comedians or people not listening or paying attention. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, that can be important because that is also what that is the truth. Sometimes that Mm -hmm. is what happens. But I definitely try to not do that all the time. Number one is like, especially if it makes you feel bad, if it makes you feel demoralized and like nobody's listening to you, if you're going to, you know, three mics like that every night, seven nights a week, maybe take one night off from that and Mm -hmm. go watch a show, go hang out at a show, be in a place with an audience. Remember that there is a better way eventually. Mm -hmm. Stay home and write more sometimes instead of just putting yourself through that gauntlet Uh, the the gauntlet is a thing that can strengthen you. I would say in those situations, uh, I mean, do what you can do. Like you, what you, what you might not want to do is develop skills that only work in that situation, Mm -hmm. which could be like a bunch of inside references that things that only those comedians would like, or like aristocrats style stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. where, it's like the grossest or most extreme because that's what's maybe quote unquote necessary to get a reaction from a room full of comedians. Uh, though there also are ways in which obviously comedians can be more discerning so that you might come up with things that if all at all comedians love it, then that could be great for your comedy uh, outside of those rooms as well. And it could be helpful in like getting you booked outside of those rooms eventually because you want to get to a place where you are Uh, entertaining whatever room you're in but I would definitely say be more creative in finding other places to perform like there are places where you can you know do some barking and get on stage in front of a realer audience than just comedians Uh, sometimes you can you know there was a room in Boston where it started out as a two-person bringer show and Mm -hmm. I would bring friends until I couldn't anymore and then they would have me like help set up the room on the weekends and I would like take tickets. And work a little bit, and then I would get a spot on that show and a spot on the open mic. That was a bringer show normally. So, like, be more creative and find uh, places that you can perform where there are other people. And like another example, a good example is like music open mics. Like, don't just go to comedy venues. Like, there's places where maybe it'll all be performers, but some of them will be musicians, and they will be mm-hmm. different than comedians. Right. A room full of all musicians and some comedians is a lot of ways better than a room that's all comedians. So I would say, yeah, try to find other places that aren't those, and then just use those for what they are. Mm-hmm. Try different things at them all the time. Don't just run, don't run jokes at all comedians that have worked before, because that can most likely lead to it not working then and being making you second-guess yourself. And second-guessing is important as well, but for me, uh, I'm glad to, that I don't, frequently have to be in only all comedian situations anymore or if i am they're usually listening to me because they want to and i'm grateful for that but <laughs> if, when i was in that situation i would use it to just churn through as many new ideas as possible because that's what an open mic is most for
1: mm-hmm. that's all really good information a lot of really good tips in there uh, we've come to the end of the interview and the time with you, though I would love to talk to you for hours picking your brain about this. We just don't have the time. So uh, let's transition here to figuring out what we can create together. I do have an idea about uh, hitting up rooms in the New York area. I'm in Brooklyn, um, but uh, are there particular rooms that you know that someone who's got no credits like myself... Uh, could still easily get time on where the crowd isn't just comics. And maybe we uh, can come up with a plan for a week.
0: Oh, sure. I mean, I the answer for me uh, for that is, and I don't know if this is still the case, but a few years ago I used to go to Bar 4. So mm-hmm. if Bar 4 still exists in Park Slope, mm-hmm. uh, it's possible that things have changed and they don't have the same programming that they do. But it used to be that Tuesday nights was their music open mic night. Like they, mm-hmm. Giannis Papas used to do uh, a comedy show on Sundays. I'm pretty sure he doesn't do that anymore or maybe he's doing it again. Who knows? But I knew, I know that Tuesdays was the bar for music open mic that anyone could show up at like, you know, 6:30 or seven or something, put your name down. And I think they did a lottery to determine when you got to go up, but I think everyone did get to go up unless there was too many people massively. But I think it would go till like, you know, uh, 11 at night, what maybe one in the morning, even like it would go hours and hours. And especially if you were on earlier, there would be people who weren't comedians. So I would say in the creating the plan that we're creating here, Mm -hmm. the thing that we're making, I would recommend looking up bar four and, finding out if they do still do a music open mic that anyone can come hang out at, find out if they welcome comedians still, and go to it. Go forth.
1: All right. And how many nights a week would you say is a wise decision? Of course, everyone is going to be different, as you mentioned earlier. Some people want to go through that gauntlet, and that can be good for them. But for the average person starting out or trying to get their teeth really sharpened, in New York, uh, what's a good plan with that? Because you certainly don't want to overdo it. So, what's a good plan that someone could uh, take for for like a week, say? And when it comes to going to the right amount of rooms and spending enough time writing and staying in,
0: uh, I mean, for this is one that's definitely going to differ person to person. Because when I started out, I remember hearing like Seinfeld say that one one period of like 18 months he did not miss one night on stage mm-hmm. that it was just like night after night after night after night every night seven nights a week multiple shows a night some nights i'm sure mm-hmm. and that was a thing that we heard like i remember growing up as a comedian hearing that uh, you know in my not growing up as a child but once i started doing comedy we heard that and that was the idea that we're like you got to do it you got to do it do it do it do it be performing as much as possible if you can't get on stage one night still go to a show And so I think that that voice is valuable. Mm -hmm. That voice is good to hear, especially when you're starting to strive for that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you, if there's a night that you can't or don't want to, or if you have a relationship that you want to spend, you know, one night a week going on a date night, I think that is also healthy and valuable. And I learned that years into doing comedy that I also do want to put work into my friendships and certainly having a full-time job and striving to do comedy full-time every night and striving to maintain relationships and friendships, uh, that can be difficult. And you know, your weekend days might be very full and I don't know what kind of job you have. Hopefully you have a job where you can do some writing and thinking because writing can be happening all the time. Shows generally can only be happening at night. So I would say, uh, my the initial voice that I'd put in your head is get up every night, do that gauntlet. Uh, until you get to a point where you're like, this is doing more harm than good, and then back off a night. Then go six nights a week. Or do it, say seven is going to be your guideline, and then back off and be like, okay, if I don't do, if I miss two nights, great. I'd say try not to miss two nights in a row. Do three days on, one day off. Three days on, one day off. Three days, or however many days you need to recharge. Two on, one off. Two on, one off. Two on, one off. Like, figure out what works for you, because for me now, if I miss, I remember one time, like I went to Florida to visit my grandmother for like five days and I didn't get on stage really during that time. And I came back to Boston and I'd been doing it, you know, somewhere maybe around four to five years at that point. And I remember getting back on stage the next night after being gone for five days and being like, I don't remember. I had to like re oil the gears. You know, mm. I, I didn't, I'd gotten into a rhythm of like Monday night, I host my open mic. Tuesday night, I go to another open mic and try out the things that worked. Wednesday night, I, I get a, I'm on a showcase show trying out you know old things that I know work with some of the new things that I'm trying. Eventually, the weekend where I'm doing you know my set that I know works with maybe one new joke that's been working for the past few days, and then just on the next Monday, start it over, try a bunch of new stuff, hone some of the new stuff, incorporate it into the old stuff, and keep growing the old stuff to incorporate the new stuff, and so. For me having that day that 5 day chunk of not doing that made threw me off just a little mm-hmm. bit so that it took me a, it took me a week to get back on schedule and so I would say figure out what rhythm works for you but in general you know doing it once a week is usually not enough to be a comedian I would say doing it more days than not is <laughs> is a good guideline to shoot for I mean mm-hmm. shoot for them all and if you make a majority of the days then don't beat yourself up about that especially when you're starting and you, you can't get on all of the best shows, all of the fullest shows, all of the shows that aren't just, you know, disheartening rooms full of comedians not paying attention to you every night. Like, yeah, definitely, I would say try to be on stage at least four nights a week if you're starting out, mm-hmm. and it, if you can, more, great. De- try to do seven, do at least four, and don't do more than four that are only that horrifying dis heartening experience. <laughs> I would say, yeah, that sounds good. Like try to have at least, you know, some of those, maybe try to have not even more than three of those. Try to have at least one a week be something that makes you feel better. Try to have as many as you can be ones that make you feel better, <laughs> but don't do more than three nights of those and do at least four nights of something.
1: Yeah. Okay. So would that four nights of something even include a writing night?
0: Uh, I would say, I mean, you can make your own rules, but my answer is, uh, if you're asking me, no, (laughs) that writing happens on the other nights, that this is talking Mm -hmm. going out and performing, like Mm -hmm. not even necessarily going to shows. Like The best case is you're performing at great shows seven nights a week, or six nights a week plus a date night, or five nights a week plus two relaxing nights, Mm -hmm. or worst case, four good shows, four good nights of performing, and then the other nights you're... Living your life, gaining experiences From which to create The art that you share the rest of those times Uh, And yeah Have writing be separate Writing be earlier in the day Mm -hmm. Or later at night Or at work Or on your off nights But yes, four nights of performing minimum I say as this arbitrary arbiter
1: of art (laughs) Thank you so much for doing the podcast We'll call it, there it is Thank you so much for having me no idea why I say let's call it there it is like that doesn't make sense like do I want to say let's call it there or there it is it's one or the other Jason stop saying dumb things (laughs) anyway I hope you really enjoyed that conversation I certainly learned a lot from it I think there's some good tips in there that I'm going to start utilizing right now I hope you do as well and if you want to know more about Mike Kaplan, you can follow him online. You can go to his website, which is mikekaplan.com, or follow him on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Mike Kaplan. He spells his name M Y Q K A P L A N. Links are in the bio. And his latest album is called No Kidding. You can check that out. And his special Small, Dork, and Handsome is available on Amazon. And he also has a podcast called Hang Out With Me. So check those things out, folks. Well, again, I hope you learned a lot from this episode and are going to get out and generate some new ideas. Until next time, folks, be good to each other.